Welcome to the Pentecost Diaries, a creative and immersive journey by Reverend Jonathan Von Davis. Chapter 3 Uprising A Deep Sleep Last night I dreamt again of home, down on the eastern side of Emmaus where the sloping hills face the warm glow of the morning sun is a small farm holding that has belonged to my father's family as far back as anyone's memory extends. Mile after mile of sheaves of grain huddling together and swaying gently like golden waves rising and breaking on Emmaus's hillside. As a child, I used to love to race through the wheat fields, swallowed up by the height of its grain, and often followed by my sweet little sister chasing me in fast pursuit. More often than not, father would just be lost out there somewhere, constantly checking the grain for pests or clearing the ground in neighbouring fields he was resting for the next seed time. For him, this simple way of life was a happy one. He had grown up right here on the land, and the thought of leaving this place never seems to have entered his head. At the back of our house is our family dinner table, and above it was a large window overlooking his allotted piece of Eden. Can't you take your eyes off here for a second? Mum would ask, as once again his precious little kingdom had attracted his gaze, stealing his attention from whatever she had been saying. I feel like I've got competition around here. His investment in the place ran as deep as the roots beneath our feet. The work was in his very blood. As his ageing eyes lovingly surveyed the land, he seemed to be instinctively drawn to exactly where needed tending next. For me, it was a playground, a safe haven, a world of my own. But for father, this was his corner of the very garden of God and caring for it was more worship than work for him. Once a year, the wheat field would return her thanks and unveil her true colours once more. Every spring the long green sheaves start to dry to a delicious golden colour, signalling that threshing season would soon return. Father would be out there, running his hands through the grain, gently breaking off the seed head in the process. He'd rub the grain between his hands, then chew what remained to check its texture. Once he was sure it was ripe enough to harvest, he would race into the granary and return with his father's ancient scythe, and he'd disappear off into the fields, humming his happy little tune, grateful once again to his land and to his God. The harvest seemed to bring father to life too. The energy of his passion was just infectious. Growing up there, you couldn't fail to find your part to play in the harvest. In the first days of threshing season, there was always one basket that was reserved for temple. Father would painstakingly go through our baskets, looking for the choice grain, and place them carefully into the chevaux basket. These are the first fruits of the grain harvest, he would tell us. And they belong not to us, but to God, the God of the harvest. Look! Look, he's been faithful to his people for another year. It is the Lord alone who brings forth bread from the earth. I asked him once why he was going through all our baskets. Because, my lad, 
first fruits are not just first in terms of timing, he said, but also in terms of testing. Only the very highest quality can be offered back to God. Father wasn't one for getting involved with the men of the village who loudly debated theology in the streets or grumbled together around the fire against the Roman occupation of our land. He wasn't always quoting Torah at you, didn't take much heed of the local group of Pharisees, but he always took great pride in Shavuot, the festival of first fruits. Every year, without fail, we would load the Shavuot baskets onto our cart and journey the Emmaus way to offer the choice grain back to God at temple. In my mind's eye, I can still see my usually reserved father queuing in line to lay his grain on the altar, tears of appreciation gently rolling down his cheeks. That look on his face was unmistakable. Harvest was here, which meant his God had proven himself faithful once again, once again worthy of his and his land's absolute best. The truth is that as I grew older, the place got into my blood too. Mum would often laugh at the two of us, both sat at the dinner table and looking outside over the fields. It'll still all be there after dinner, she'd say, smiling at me. You do know that nothing's going to change in the time it takes you to eat up your broth. We'd laugh, but just to be sure, once our bowls were empty, we'd be back out there in the field. Me running my hands through the sheaves like I'd seen Father do a thousand times before, rubbing it through my hands and chewing the grain. Is it ready yet, Father? I'd ask a million times, offering him my hand to sample it too. Not quite, he'd reply, still chewing carefully. It's so close now, my lad, but we've still got to wait a little while longer. And then, sensing my hurried young heart, he'd add, Patience, my boy, patience. Trust me, when the time does come, it'll be worth all the waiting in the world. Galilee. Father's face began to shake, slowly at first, but then more and more violently. The wheat fields behind him began to spin, then fade to black. Another voice was bellowing over Father's. Up! Quick! Wake up! A hand rocking my shoulder transported me back in an instant to the upper room that had hidden us away safely these past two weeks. Get up! We're leaving! Leaving, I said, still adjusting my eyes to the light of day and my head back to its familiar surroundings. Yes, there's going to be some sort of gathering. We're going to Galilee. The voice belonged to Andrew, Peter's younger brother. It seemed that Andrew was once again running some sort of errand for his big brother. Andrew was excited, and I wasn't surprised. Ever since we'd met, Andrew had longed to show me Galilee, where he'd grown up and learned his beloved fishing trade from his father. In no time at all, we were all up, out and on the road, pacing ourselves for the day-long hike down Jerusalem's hills and onto the old Jericho Road that wound its way to Galilee. There were many of us now, so we decided it best to divide our number into different groups so that no Roman guard would mistake us for a mob or question our purpose. As the day stretched out, the journey was a great chance to catch up with so many others. 
Didymus, who'd been missing the first time Jesus had appeared, but now here, a fully pledged witness of Jesus. James and the rest of Jesus' brothers, who'd often tried to discourage Jesus from his kingdom movement and return home with them, now walking along right here with us, sharing and talking and laughing and joking. Over these past few weeks, Jesus would still visit us from time to time, still surprise us by his sudden appearance among us, still speaking the same shalom, the serenity of God over us still speaking the promise of his kingdom coming and of his Father's heart for all. The shores of Galilee are surrounded by hills on almost every side. And though nobody had mentioned exactly where we would gather, my best guess was that one of Galilee's hillsides would house our number and hide our presence from those who still wish us harm. Sure enough, as we ventured down through Market Street towards the shoreline, we could see the dotted line of our fellow pilgrims disappearing up around the back of one of its hillsides and just out of view. My little group paused so as not to draw too much attention to the spot, but in a short while, that would be our path too. I'd heard Andrew talk so many times about this very place, and I could see straight away why he loved it so much. The vast expanse of Galilee's shorelines, the gentle lapping of the waves upon her sands, the smell of the market, fresh with fish and fruit and grain, alive with people, with noise, with life. Being out of the upper room and out amongst the crowds, I remembered Jesus' face whenever he looked at a scene like this. It was his eyes where you saw it first. Those eyes that held a deep longing, a loving look that seemed to reach out from his face. Harvest time, he said on one occasion, is threshing season. That's what you're looking at here. Forget the fear you're feeling and focus on them. If you look closely enough, you will see it. They are ripe to harvest. Then, turning to me, he added quietly, oh, But the workers are so few. If only people would find their part to play in my father's fields. Sat at the water's edge was a sorry old-looking fishing boat, full of piles of dirty nets. It was anchored up to a nearby harbour post, and from the look of it was long abandoned there to aimlessly bob about. Peter and Andrews? Cleopas wondered out loud. Could be, I chimed back at him. They were fishing for bigger things now, for people who needed to know the truth that would set them free. Standing here today was amazing, in the actual spot where Jesus had started it all. For me, the invitation still hung there somehow in the air. Come on, follow me. And they had, and later so had we, not really knowing at the time all that would mean or all we would see. Cleopas nudged me. The evening would be drawing in soon, and he obviously felt it was as good a time as any to go and join our fellowship. Soon we found their path, where someone had carved out the shape of a fish with the toe of their sandal in the road's dust for us to see. Even here and now, Jesus was still inviting us to follow. The path around the mountain to its hidden hillside was short but steep, 
In mere moments, we were able to look back down again on Galilee's shores. But the sound of our number, gathered just around the corner, was even more enticing than the view. Nothing, however, could prepare me for the sight. There must have been hundreds of us, literally hundreds. Andrew and Levi ran over to us. You made it, Andrew said excitedly. You're here. We are, said Cleopas, along with the rest of the world, it would seem. I don't know how word got out, but there must be three or four hundred here. There's over five hundred, Levi said. For though his heart had left his tax-collecting booth far behind him, his mind still had its old habit of totalling up everything he laid eyes on, whether he wanted to or not. My head was still scanning, trying to take it all in. Did we even know there were this many of us? I asked. No, said Andrew, but it seems like not even death was going to slow Jesus down. Yeah, this is quite a gathering, Cleopas said, his face beaming. He does appear to have been rather busy for a dead man. We moved among the huge crowd, meeting old friends and new, sharing stories, sharing hopes and dreams. One family ran over to us. They had been there that day when Jesus had fed the multitudes with one child's meagre lunch, and they were excited to share the memory of that meal with us. You just couldn't deny what was happening as people shared what Jesus had done for them. The sheer glow on their faces, the buzz in the air, the thrill in the voices. Amazing. Just amazing. But it wasn't over yet. Sheer excitement and deep caution aren't easy companions. And for all the wonder of being together, someone's anxious glances or hushed tones would serve to remind you that we were a large crowd in a public space who'd gathered to celebrate a rather unpopular truth. Which is why the sudden sound of shrieks were all the more shocking. In an instant, hands covered mouths, parents protectively grabbed their children and heads turned in all directions to see what had caused this reaction. And then you saw him. A man standing a little further up the mountain from all of us. The length of the plane that stretched up behind him meant he couldn't have journeyed down that far without having been seen before now. It was Jesus. He had just appeared again. Friends, he called out. He had sensed our fear, but clearly didn't share it. Shalom. People gasped, hearts raced, children jumped up and down and then slipped out of their parents' grip, running full speed towards Jesus. Let them, he said warmly, let them come. The truth is, if your hearts allowed you to see it as quickly as a child's does, you'd be running too. The children threw their arms around Jesus, talking and laughing, gazing up in wonder, drinking in the reality. Didn't I tell you, Jesus said, looking up at us all, that where just two or three of you are gathered in my name, I'd be right there in the middle of you? Well then, he said, surveying the size of the crowd, you didn't think I'd miss this, did you? What Cleopas and I had experienced together in Emmaus, and then with the brothers in Jerusalem, was now multiplied beyond measure. 
and as I saw the same wonder being birthed in others, somehow that same joy would wash over me again and again in wave upon wave of love and peace. Cleopas put his hand on my shoulder. We had held a deep longing for others to see what we had seen, to know what we now knew, to feel what we now felt, and here it was, happening right in front of us. His wet eyes didn't move from where Jesus was walking through the crowd, hugging, talking, laughing, loving. Quite a harvest, he said to me, smiling. The harvest of burning hearts. Bethany. It would be a week or so later before we were gathered together again in numbers. Not hundreds like before, but enough to feel the sense of growing momentum of Jesus' movement. One of Jesus' favourite places was a town called Bethany, although the old place was losing that name in favour of its new nickname, Lazarus Town. The locals who'd witnessed Jesus calling Lazarus out of his tomb now couldn't think of it any other way. Lazarus's sisters, Martha and Mary, were deeply fond of Jesus, and he of them, and their home had been our base camp on many a journey. Today, however, we were up early and heading the back way out of Bethany's cosy hamlets. Our path was taking us out into one of Jesus's other favourite places, the mountains. There was less danger here than in Galilee, and much less so than in Jerusalem. But even so, the group began to spread out as we tackled the slope at different paces. At the front, though, was Jesus, quickly joined by Lazarus. Seeing them walking together out in front of the crowd, it did something to you. Death was no longer the great, unescapable unknown we had feared it was. Something was new, something powerful was leading the way, and we were part of it. Cleopas caught up with me. So, do you think this is what it will be like now? He asked me. I don't know, I replied. I, I certainly don't want all this to end. As we got higher up the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem's rooftops began to come into view, lower down on the nearby Mount Zion. It was David's city, but her high walls and gates were now draped in the colours and emblems of Rome. Even from this distance, Caesar's insignia was still stamped in dominant defiance. Cleopas pointed over at the ancient city with its history and its destiny, I mean, look, Rome's been defeated, right? Cleopas said, looking at me. They threw their worst at Jesus, and he didn't just survive it, he conquered it. And then pointing at our number following him, he continued, And look at us. We wouldn't leave the upper room without our robes up over our heads, and now we're out in the open, fearing no threat. The transformation was undeniable, but I couldn't see where my friend was going with this. So, how much longer will it be, he asked, taking both my hands in his. He keeps talking about his kingdom coming fully in power, but he's a little hazy as to when it will be. Up ahead, Jesus had stopped walking and turned to face the same view Cleopas had been pointing at. From this height you could see beyond Jerusalem into the surrounding hills of Judea 
the Sumerian hills off in the other direction, and away into the distance the sea that connected our shores to the rest of the world. The group of us circled around him, taking in the same view. Silence fell as the majesty of the panorama just arrested us. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. The landscape itself testified to it. The mountains seemed to boast it, and up here you could see it so clearly. This was God's good earth, and it was so good. Lord, Cleopas asked, turning to Jesus, isn't it time, time for you now to restore the kingdom to your people? Jesus smiled, his face looking out over creation. The time will surely come, for my father has decreed it by his own authority. It's not a matter of if, but a matter of when. Then turning towards us, he said, but exactly when? That's not for you to know. Then Jesus looked up to the heavens, which today was filled with huge white clouds that made the light breaking through them somehow all the more stunning. But know this, Jesus continued, you will receive power when Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll carry my story, my hope, my invitation into Jerusalem. We turned our faces towards the city once more. And from there, into the whole Judean territory. Our eyes kept scanning as he continued. And all of Samaria too. And to the uttermost ends of the earth. Our eyes were on the horizon. I'd only recently travelled as far as Samaria and that was with Jesus. But beyond that I'd never ventured past our shores. Barely any of us had. Unknown places, peoples, languages, ideas, religions, cultures, to the ends of the earth? Wow, now there's a harvest. Jesus always had this way of expanding your vision, your thinking, your compassion. But this was something else. Wow. I don't know if you've ever been excited and petrified at the same time, overwhelmed and yet humbled. I didn't know how on earth Holy Spirit was going to come to us, but if we were going to do this, I was hungry for this power Jesus had promised that he would bring us. Patience, my boy. Patience, I told myself. When the time comes, it will be worth all the waiting in the world. Jesus had lifted up his hands to shoulder height, just like I'd seen the high priest do at temple. He began praying, speaking his blessing over us. And then it happened. I cannot explain how it happened, just what I saw. Jesus began to rise up slowly off the ground, as if his body was somehow being pulled up from the mountain by some force above him. But there was nothing above him but sky. And he didn't flinch, just carried on blessing us as he continued to soar higher and higher over our heads. His voice was going out further and further, blessing after blessing, carried high on the winds from this place, out to the ends of the world before him.
I just stood there, gazing in awe, my mind racing for an explanation that never came. Eventually he reached the level of the clouds until the bright golden glory enveloped around him. He's right back where he belongs, I thought to myself. We squinted our eyes through the brightness and strained our vision to keep him in sight as long as possible. But soon all trace of him had gone and he vanished through the clouds from our view. We were glued to the spot wondering what had happened and what might happen next. Men of Galilee, said a stranger's voice. We spun around. Why are you just standing here looking up into the empty sky? There were two men standing there. The glare from their dazzlingly bright white robes, brighter than the luminous clouds we'd been staring up into. Angels? Cleopas whispered to me. They're just as Mary described. Heaven had received back her king, and now its messengers had been sent to announce the news. Jesus has been taken up into heaven, but he's coming back one day in the same way you saw him leave. I look back up at the clouds, gone back into the heavens. One stage of his journey now complete, the next now beginning. I turned back towards our angelic companions, but of course they too had vanished. I thought I had cried my last, but more tears welled up within me. Jesus was home with his father, and until he returned, his mission was now ours. It was a bittersweet moment. What now? asked Andrew. Peter moved to stand in front of us and addressed the group. Jerusalem, of course. That's where he told us to wait. Now he has returned to heaven. He's promised to send us Holy Spirit, and that's where he'll meet us. Cleopas threw his arm over my shoulder, and we headed back down the mountainside towards Bethany, and from there onto the city once more. Just beyond Bethany, the road winds through a series of large, well-kept wheat fields, its tall golden corn waving us its welcome. Instinctively, my hand reached out and ran through the long sheaves, gently breaking off its seed head like I'd done since childhood. I raised my hand to my mouth to chew on the grain. Cleopas looked over, watching my father's old ritual still playing itself out. Well he asked. Is it ready? As I chewed the grain, its texture telling me that it still needed longer in the sun, I spotted a chevaux basket sat waiting by a short stone wall. Of course, the festival of first fruits wouldn't be far away. Not quite ready yet, I said. But looking at this harvest, it's going to be worth all the waiting. You've been listening to The Pentecost Diaries, a creative and immersive journey by Reverend Jonathan Von Davis.